Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Attack Release Show. My name is Matt, and I am joined by my good friend from Nashville, Sam Moses. Yalla. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about a topic that I have never heard another podcast chat about. Never. And it's kind of, we try to go a little out of our way to talk about some things that really no one else is chatting about. And this one goes down the rabbit hole a touch. Like, you know, you might need a little bit of a mastering primer to kind of get into this one. But um, this may also be kind of interesting for clients, mixers, and producers to be like, what might be happening on the (laughs) mastering side of things? It's like, whoa, that got fun. And so that's the hopeful um, result of this podcast. So we'll probably get a few people in trouble too. So that's all. That's all nice and fun. But before that, Sam, Matt, we got a little bit of uh, sweeping up, get the Windex, get the feather duster, the sequent jacket, the vacuum, any other cleaning supplies we might need. Ooh, the magic eraser. Matt, I was That's just a great one for that. mastering. That's a great one for mastering. I love the magic, the magic eraser. eraser. That, is, that is the isotope rx (laughs) equivalent in the cleaning take us away to housekeeping housekeeping welcome welcome my friends today on housekeeping you have the unique opportunity to pause this episode for the next 30 seconds and like share subscribe to our podcast and most importantly the thing that really moves the needle that pins it to the board that makes your master louder than all the others is when you share this podcast with one other person. Really, that's uh, that's the best thing you can do. If you want to help us out, if you want to support us, uh, please just share it with one person or when we post it online, just reshare it or share it yourself. And that helps uh, other people join in the community that we have created here with all of you. And the more people that uh, seem to join in the community here, uh, we seem to have, we seem to learn more and have more fun, I've noticed. So, I think that's all for today's housekeeping. Matt, take it away. Nice. Well, today's episode, automation in mastering. Woo! I really think we're just going to get more people in trouble than, <laughs> than we're going to help in this one, but I don't know. This is this is definitely an episode of like all good things in moderation, mm-hmm. and uh, so I'm gonna have you take us away Ooh. with. I'm kind of like reading, and so I'm kind of like off axis of the mic. I apologize. When, like, when and why do you need to automate in the mastering stage? Yeah, like why why is it necessary? When is it necessary? And then getting personal in it. How often do you? Automate in the mastering stage. When, why? When, why, and how? And how? Great. Just wrote that down. When, why, how? I can remember that. All right. So this will be my opinion only um, mm-hmm. on how and when, when I do it. Let the me- best part about all of this, though, is that from what I know about you, Ooh. is you do this differently than I do it. It's probably, we probably do it differently. Different strokes for different folks. That's what I hear. 
So um, get after it. Okay, here we go. So when I automate, I mean the first the first thing I do, the most common automation I do is when a song is absolutely compressed to death, meaning that it is more loud more often because it has been compressed limited. Now this <laughs> too loud too often. Too loud too often. Ooh, I like that actually. We should say that. Um, this doesn't mean that the song sounds bad, but often people still want the song to have some sort of movement. Now, when we talk about that, sometimes people make drastic dynamic things like, oh, we need like 5 dB movements. That's actually quite alarming and disorienting for modern music. And so when I get a brick sent to me uh, at the mix stage from someone who mixed it and used lots of compression, which is fairly common, it's a sound we like. All of us actually really enjoy that sound for the most part. If you like modern anything you listen to on New Music Friday, 99% of those songs are going to be heavily compressed. Um, and what I like to do is automate uh, like the volume of the verses to the choruses, which is actually what a lot of mixers do as well. Um, so I may drop the chorus a hair and bump the, uh, or sorry, drop the verse a hair and keep the chorus where it's at. Or I might even, depending on where the song is and where it goes based on the content, I might start the beginning of the song 2dB quieter than where it ends and each section is actually growing. It just kind of depends. I kind of let my old mixer hat um, step in and think about at the mastering stage, does this song take us somewhere and am I still interested by the end of it? And simple volume changes uh, can really make your brain go, hey, what's that? What is that? What's going on? Oh, here is a bigger part. This must be the course. It's kind of like training your brain. Uh, your brain is looking for things to be different or changes. It takes notice of that. And when a song is identical from start to finish, especially in volume, and I'm not talking, you don't need a ton of change, just a little change. Your brain is very quick. Your ears are fairly quick overall at noticing change. Um, you know, I'll do that and it'll just make the song a bit more interesting and make it feel like we're going from, hey, here's the verse, here's the pre, here's the chorus, here's the verse, here's the pre, here's the chorus, here's the bridge. If there is a bridge, here's chorus, chorus, out. Um, and so that's probably the most common time of when I use it. Um, some other instances, do you want me to share about all my instances of when I use it? Um, I mean, you can paint as broad strokes as you would like. There's just kind of a few others, honestly. Um, sure. When I use it, I might use automation for EQ purposes. If the chorus, if the song has been, this gets back into compression. If I feel like um, someone set their compressor uh, settings at the chorus, basically, or, or it's more so, they set their they actually they set their compressor settings probably at the verse stage. So the verse is starting to grab, and then when the chorus kicks in, it gets really grabby, and everything kind of shrinks, or the low end starts to fall out. Um, mm -hmm. I will automate EQ in the chorus um, and or with volume to bring back mid-range or bring back low end or tame top end, depending on whatever the song is doing. If it feels like we go from verse being 
like really tonally balanced and working well with the compression that was there. And then we get to the chorus and all of a sudden the chorus feels like the bottom end just emptied itself out because now it's say taking off 4 dB in compression at the mix stage or maybe in their verse it was only kind of tickling it. Um, I'll EQ, uh, I'll automate some EQ in there to make it just sound more uh, balanced and more enjoyable and more big and full, which is what most people want their choruses to sound like is bigger and more full. So I'll do that um, sometimes. And then I will mess very rarely with mid-side if uh, someone specifically. I do have clients that will give me notes sometimes, and this isn't good or bad, just what they want. So I do it usually. They'll say, can we make this sound wider? And now with that, there's often things, you know, anytime you change EQ, you're you're changing mid-side relationship, even if you're not doing mid-side specific with a plug-in. Um, but I will take, say, stereo and just bump it with a stereo widener. I like the um, Plug-in Alliance the BX. Um, it does a really good job out of the box, or I can do it manually on the Better Maker has mid-side, and I can just ride that um, manually in the courses or something to make something feel a bit more wide, and then I'll bring it back for verses. So that is the the win of when I will potentially use it. Um, the final thing I'll do, I guess, real quick on the win is um, if there's something really harsh, I'll automate some mm-hmm. of the top end out or uh, sibilance, just depending on once we get stuff to volume and make everything more loud more often, sometimes top end can become a problem when it's all smashed together even more to get to the desired uh, compression slash volume the client wants. I'll have to go in. And that's where like a dynamic EQ could actually do, in theory, like automation for you. If you've set that correctly, it only kicks in when there's X amount of volume in that frequency that's going off, um, which is essentially what I would be doing automating. But I don't always love dynamic EQ. Sometimes I just like my own EQ cutting or however I want to achieve that to tame a harsh top end. So that's kind of my overall, like those are the most common wins for me of when I will automate and I do like automation. I think it's good. I think it helps things move along. We do automation like throughout the whole process of making music. You know, the way you play something, you play it quieter and louder. You're essentially kind of automating and then mixing. You're obviously moving faders and hopefully you're automating lots of things usually. That's usually the sign of a good mix because you're actually mixing things together. And then at the mastering stage, often viewed as like you shouldn't touch anything but a lot of mastering people I know touch a lot of things Mm -hmm. (laughs) so whether or not that's good or bad you know that's up to the client uh, to decide of course but um, you know I find automation to be beneficial um, you know and I don't I don't do it on every song but it's a it's a technique I will use you know every week I use it on something um, to make the song match the client's vision and end goal. So that's my opening monologue on the when. That was just the when, you know. Oh, there's a little bit of how in there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Matt, when 
do you automate? What's, what are we different on? How do you do it? What's your thoughts? Um, so, okay, so let's, uh, let's also kind of set like a, like a where as well. Oh, yeah. Because right, I, I believe it's pretty simple and pretty similar. Um, your where, I am assuming, is on your post-processing mm. after your print, correct? E- well. So this is interesting. Okay. <laughs> Unpack. Well, sometimes it's before it leaves the box because okay. I want to push into the gear a certain way. So when I do something like that and I want a certain color out of a piece of gear and I want to not do it manually on the gear, I'll do it, uh, you know, essentially manually. I'll write it in logic on my, it says, uh, you know, mix out. That's my out and then there's mix in print um, slash master. And so I will automate the the send out um, to be either volumes or different changes, depending on how I want to hit gear to create different saturation and whatnot. So I'll leave that at that. But yeah, sometimes I will do that. The only time I will go pre-gear is it's it's pretty popular to kind of have like a down intro uh, these days. And if the down intro is too down compared to when the full band or at least the, let's just call it like the full signal, the full whatever comes in. Um, And I need to kind of like automate a level so that it's less jarring. And if it's it's not supposed to be as jarring, that's when I'll fix it. Um, But besides that, it's like if it's, even if it's crazy... Sibilant or something like that. I don't know. I I, I might fix that before. It just kind of depends on how I want to stack things um, in the analog realm and whatnot. Um, but I mean, if it is like super sibilant, then normally nothing analog is going to be able to tackle that stuff as well as something digital. So if you can find a good digital um, solution for that, then there you go. So anyway. Um, I typically will automate post print and it'll generally so let me kind of go down my little mental faculties of where it may be. Um something that I have been using a lot, and I guess if we do a gear episode, I'm adjusting my mic in case there's like a weird sound. Um something I have been using a lot is I really, really, really love master rebalance from ozone, isotope, ozone, whatever. And so if for those of you who don't know, you can essentially adjust a vocal level, you can adjust drum level, and you can adjust um, bass level. So the nice thing about all of that is like if you have a vocal level that's like super way down and it really doesn't need to be per the genre and you're having a hard time bringing up that level, well, this is a little tiny AI platform that will internally isolate the vocal and then allow you to bring that up or down. I have found that it will bring up like a similar sounding electric guitar um, and sometimes some things in that range. It's not perfect, but it's pretty daggum close and it's only going to get better. Um, 
Here's the interesting thing that I figured out that has nothing to do with automation. If you just turn it on, it still has to work because it's, it is incredibly like CPU heavy. And so you know it's still working, even if it's still set at zero attenuation, up or down, whatever. It's still doing something. So I found even if I like, if I need a little bit more vocal, if I need a little bit more drum to cut through, I'll just turn it on and it's still internally isolating that source. Mm-hmm. And so there is an audible change. It's not a clear bypass if you're not like, if, if, if the plugin itself is not bypassing, it is working, but at zero, it is still doing something because it's mentally, let's call it, having to isolate that source and getting ready for your input. So if you need drums to cut through, you can just kind of turn it on and it's like, oh, that's a little better. Um, but if I have like a vocal or something and it's just like driving and it just like kind of needs to break through because there's like not enough dynamic range left or something like that, I'll like turn that thing up by like, and all you need is like 0.1. And a lot of people don't know this. If you click on the thing, you got like to the thousandth of the decimal point to do your automation if you really want to. Um, if you use the mouse, you're only going up by tenths. But if you want to set it to a place, you can do it to the thousandth. And so you can be pretty darn precise with it. Um, so if I need a vocal to really push through in like the last chorus or something like that and just kind of getting drowned out, I'll totally automate that sucker. And it is pretty darn fun. And it's not as drastic of a thing as automating like uh, either the fader, which the fader is, correct me if I'm wrong, the fader is, is post-plug-in, correct? I'm sorry, can you say that one more time? The fader is post plugin, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, it's better than automating the fader, and it's better than automating a limiter because you don't have the actual level of the song going up and down. It just sounds like something is naturally getting a little bit louder by automating just a specific part. Yeah. So that's something that I really like to do, um, vocals or drums and stuff like that. Um, it's a re it's kind of cheating, but. It's like, you know what, in war, it's like, I don't really care how you win the war so long as you win the war and the client's happy. It's like, I don't really care how I get there. Um, like, I have a picture in my head of where I, where I want this thing to go, and that's why the client has chosen me. And so I'm going to get it there by whatever means necessary. So that means breaking it down into a little stem, I'm going to totally do that. So that's that. Um, Definitely DSing, very rarely in Soothe. The DSer that I use in the box is, I can't remember who does it. it might be Sound Toys or something, but um, it's the Weiss DSer. I think it's fantastic. And it goes down to 2K, and you have two bands. Absolutely fantastic. And it does it in a very analog y sounding way. And it's not like, DSing as like, oh, that vanished. It just kind of like massages it back. And it's, if you had to spend any cash on a DS, you're like, people know me, I love like top end control. And so um, that guy will get it, especially if you have like a, like a vocal kind of going crazy or something like that. But then the band comes in, or maybe it's like you have like a male vocalist and a, like a female vocalist, and like the female. I always have a really difficult time with female vocals. I don't know why, um, and so I always feel like I need to. I'm always having to tame it a little more than a male vocal, 
And so that de-esser has always just been a really handy tool to be like, okay, this makes it gel a little bit better. But then whenever the chorus, when they're both singing, I don't want it to be so heavy because I don't want it to tame both of the vocals. And so I'll just completely bring it up. But then in the bridge or the outro, if she's singing by herself again, I may bring that back down. That actually happened within the last week and um, really kind of saved my bottom. So I like that a lot. Um, dynamic EQ is fun. I don't use it really as much. I call it the millennial EQ because it's very indecisive. Not indecisive, but you know, it, it's like it's a user, whether it's indecisive. It's like, I want an EQ, but I want a compressor, but I want the EQ to be there, but not all the time, but I don't want to automate. And so that's, I always call it the millennial EQ because it's like you pick it if you don't like really always want something to be there, but it kind of want it there. Um, anyway, um, I think that's great. I don't really use them too much anymore. I used to use it um, if I wanted to do like this vocal trick, I would use uh, the Ozone Dynamic EQ and I would kind of like boost around the 2K range and then I would kind of, I would have it so that it would be a curve that would pull down. So I'd maybe boost by like a dB, dB and a half. And then like if the vocalist really dug in, it would be pulling back kind of like how they would be pulling back from a microphone. Mm. And Sam, for reference, I just pull back from my microphone so it kind of you know, had a little effect, mm -hmm, just so you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, but the dynamic EQ kind of did that on its own. And so, um, but now I got a few other tools to kind of play with vocals and if I need to do something. But if you need it to be like super smooth, that always really was pretty good for me. Um Something that I, I, I've done this like two or three times, and then every single time I've done this, I've gotten in trouble. <laughs> is anytime I've ever put reverb on a master, and it's Ooh. not a lot. It's like it's literally just like a little bit blended in at like three percent, and uh, but I like I've always gotten caught, and it's never, <laughs> never really been good. So this is the part of the episode where you'll get in trouble. Um, to where like reverb is fantastic because um, we all know what it does, mm -hmm. but in the mastering sense, it kind of can act a little bit like a compressor yep. in that you're kind of putting glue and you're kind of telling everything where to go and you're telling everything where its place is spatially. And so it's a nice little weird way to kind of glue something together at the mastering stage. But I found that if you don't automate it, I think there was one time I got away with it. Um, the other two was no bueno. But if you don't automate it and you have like a down verse, down chorus or something, and then it's going to really stand out, oh, hey, there's extra reverb here, then it's just going to be like a whole bowl of no bueno. So um, I also automate hardware. And I don't know if you do that, Sam. Yeah, sometimes. I, what I do mean, you I, automate? I have a long brick here. <laughs> so I'd like to automate you into this conversation. Ooh, Ooh. Like that. I will Slide. say, real quick, I, I will sometimes use reverb as well. Um, do you get away with it? Yeah, I've never never gotten caught. Um, I I use it exactly how I described though for glue. Like sometimes songs just feel so it's weird. sterile and not put together. Um, and a lot of times people don't sense that in their own room because their room isn't set up great, so there's not a lot of space or dimension. Um, but when I hear songs that feel disconnected, that's really how it feels. Feels like the vocals 
It's not. It's more than just a level thing. It just feels like it's not believable almost. Mm-hmm. And reverb for me will make it feel like it was actually in one room, uh, intentional. And I've never had anyone complain about it. I don't tell people when I do it because most people probably would say don't weird. don't do it. Um, but people that I I don't do it a ton. It's probably it's probably once every few weeks there'll be a song where they'll tell me what they want it to be like or they'll give me a reference and I'll listen to the reference and just be like, man, if we really want to get there, I need to do some heavy lifting, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll automate it in. But I do it in the choruses, you know, mainly. I'll keep it off in the verses. Or I'm more so if it's a sparse time of the, the song, I'll kick it off and then I'll turn it back on. Um, but with hardware... I mean, hardware for me is uh, manual movements. The place I do it the most at is with the Better Maker. I will automate the color section probably the most and or the clipper to limiter ratios blend. Because mm. I can, you can blend those to be like, you know, 60, 40, clipper, limiter, you know, whatever you want it to be, you can do. And what I've noticed over now, I don't know, I bought this thing like pretty much the day it came out within like a few months of it being released. So it's been a couple of years. The color section, which I think it's one of the best uh, saturators you can buy. I would buy this thing just for the saturation because you can choose even odds. You can choose the the drive, the exact frequency you want and the the amount you want. So it's pretty powerful. Um and what I have noticed is that sometimes with pop stuff, um, once again, if it's a bit sparse, if it's just kind of like a synth kick and a snap and a vocal, that synth, it for some reason, well, not for some reason, synths are like heavy frequency and often kind of buzzy um, just to begin with. That's the nature of synths, distortion and, and the waves, depending on what wave you're picking, sawtooth or sign or whatever. Um you know, it's it sometimes makes them a little fuzzy as opposed to just kind of fatter. So I'll sometimes keep the color off um, in the beginning of songs and then in choruses, I'll just turn my knobs. Now in theory, and now I'm just thinking about this because you can use the plug-in to control the Better Maker gear. Um, and I've never thought to automate the plug-in. <laughs> I've just always done it manually. Huh. And uh, I would assume it would control it, but I've never tried that out. Um, I'm sure it would work. I can't believe I've never thought about doing that. Anyway, probably because I like touching gear. Um, but that would make my life a lot easier. Anyway, I'm having a revelation live on the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> Going to try that out later. Anyway, I'll adjust the the color saturation um, on the Better Maker. That's probably the thing I touch the most. Um, sometimes I will adjust um, on the massive passive top end sometimes, the 1K region, 2K region, if I want something to really cut and shine in the courses. I do a lot of work in the courses. That's what I'm noticing. I'm saying a lot. Um, I just feel like with people, when they get to courses, they get smaller a lot of times. And I think it's people don't set their compression right or they've made the verses... <laughs> so exciting they've given away the whole song in the verse and 
You just can't do that, in my opinion. If you make everything as bright, loud, bassy, thumpy, wide as you can from intro to verse, then the chorus has nowhere to go. And once again, I'm talking about, you don't need it. I'm not preaching dynamics. I'm just saying you just need a little bit of movement. And I reintroduced that uh, movement that was probably there at one point in the production stage um, before the mix got super smashed down. And once again, I don't mind smash stuff. I make loud records like compression. It's all good. But but really great records just have a, a hair of something different. And so I try to enhance that and bring it back in. So sometimes Mass Passive, I'll do that manually. Um, and that's pretty easy to do. One thing I really... Um, I've really always enjoyed about the... Uh, Alicia Expressor that I have is it has a gain reduction limiter um, where it will limit what? the amount of gain reduction. So it will what? never go past a certain amount of reduction. Shut Keep it up. From pumping. Yeah. It's the, That's cool. It's a feature every compressor, compressor limiter should have, in my opinion. Dang. So I usually set it at about 1.5 and it will never take off more than that. Um, and it's pretty amazing. Like it, it keeps things supernatural, um, supernatural, <laughs> divine. Keeps things sounding <laughs> supernatural. And well, it's still divine. Um, but yeah, that's a feature that I'm like, this is brilliant because you don't. That's really like a set it and forget it compressor when I want to use it. And it's, hmm. it's something I don't use a ton anymore, just because I, I don't know. I just like, it's kind of was one of the the earlier pieces of gear, but it is a freaking workhorse and it's often very clean and transparent. There's a warm button on it you can push, which adds a bit of density to it. But it's a compressor. Like I probably will never get rid of that thing because sometimes when I need something to be consistent, I just hit the gain reduction limiter on it and feed that then into the next something and it just works better. Um... So that's like an auto automation, essentially. It's doing the work for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely at this stage, the last couple of years, Better Maker is what I'm touching the most. Um, that piece of gear is just such a fun piece of gear. There's so many kind of options um, on it. And so I'll automate that. But I mean, uh, ideally, like, I guess in theory, like, I wouldn't have to automate stuff, I think. Um, but I just find that it opens the songs back up and makes them more um, closer to what I think the client's telling me they want. You know, if a client's like, I want the choruses to really hit hard and be huge, and I listen to the mix, and it's like, well, your choruses are shrinking, which is why they're probably mm -hmm. saying that. They're probably saying that because they're like, we just couldn't get the mix to like explode at the, you know, at the choruses, which is probably the most common thing I get from people is they want the choruses to be big or whatever, which is great. I do too. So I just find that automation allows me to do that um, and reintroduce, you know, what's probably already there, but I'm just, I have techniques and tools that are, I'll say mastering grade that just handle, they handle loudness and volume and compression better and they're able to actually achieve um, the sound people want. So, that's kind of how I do the hardware thing. Um, you automate hardware, though, correct? I do. I try not Manually. to. 
<laughs> Indeed. The I try to not automate the hardware, but it's like sometimes it's just the right move for the song, and that's what we're all here for. So uh, it really has to be a switch or a knob or whatever it is that is not going to make an audible pop or a click or just kind of like introduce some type of garbage into the print because then that really just like defeats the purpose unless you really want to go back in and like RX that out later. Yeah. Um, it's kind of silly. So there's some stuff that I trust, like the, I, I probably would never do it. I'm going to, yeah, I'll do this a little backwards. I would never do it on the, uh, the very Mew. Everything's pretty quiet on the switches. They're stepped, but I just don't trust it. Um, and like I know like how the wipers and everything work on the switches that they use, but it's just I don't want to have to go back and redo it. The massive passive I have redone it on. Um, I have done that on, and the the detents on the massive passive are it's kind of an artificial detent. It's really just for recall, um, and it's actually the way that I can tell how it works mechanically. Uh, without taking it apart, is there are ball bearings in the bottom of this dish. And then on the bottom of the uh, attenuator, there is a cup that just jumps between the ball bearings. And so you're it's about as close to a swept switch as possible. However, you do have set detents. They're just kind of your hopping ball bearings for recall. Um so I have done that before. The switches themselves on the band select, um, like boost and cut or shelf or something, I have played with that one time, mm-hmm. and that was interesting, and I got away with that. <laughs> um, I would never insert a piece of gear. Um, I don't think I have a piece of gear. The mass lick stuff would insert pretty quiet. The MPL2 would, the... I don't think the EQ would. Neve stuff isn't overly quiet. Some Sometimes it is. Okay, so I'll get to what I do automate. Um, I, have the, I have the massive passive, not always. Um, sometimes if the choruses need to be larger, I will stage my print so that the mass lick MEA2 is in. And I'll dial in, say, like a shelf between 14K and 27K. And then whenever I want there to be that more room and spatial thing, I may dial up the mid, I may just dial up the side, I may dial dial up like the mid and the side because I have it on the mid-side channel. And uh, so just kind of like dial that up in a chorus is kind of fun. Um, Let's see, I wouldn't do anything with the foot control system, but I could because I have the swept attack and release knobs, so I could do that quietly. The one thing I will automate on the Neve is the, um, they have this like one knob limiter, and it's like if I'm getting like a little bit of crackle at the converter stage or something, or maybe the Neve's just being driven a little hard, um, I... I found that like dead noon, I think it's like 18 <clears throat> as far as settings go, um, is kind of like the perfect all-around setting if you need a limiter, but you're kind of eating up a little bit of headroom, and so I'll dial it back like two, three, four, five clicks. And uh, 
if something needs to be kind of like just like tickled down, um, I'll play with that. But then I'll try to automate it out, but not completely off because it's shut off by a relay and relays can be loud sonically. So it's like maybe I'll have it at, I don't know, 21. And if I need it real quick for a part, I'll dial it up to close to 18 and then I'll dial it back to like between 21 and 24. But, excuse me, if I get close to 24, I risk triggering that relay and I don't want to get anywhere near that. So... It's just kind of like knowing the limitations of gear. Something I automate pretty often is the Maslick MPL2. I can insert it really quick, but it's normally always in. It just has a really quick throw switch that's really quiet. Um, I will not do anything with the input level, but if I need to do something with the threshold um, of the high-frequency limiter part, I can always just like dial that up, or normally I'm having to dial it back um, for something. I can also, you can throw one of the levers and or switches, whatever they're called, and you can just attenuate the mid, um, which sometimes is nice as opposed to like if something's going on on the side and you don't want to do something to it, you can just throw that real quick and you can kind of dodge whatever that was. Once again, though, I don't really recommend automating hardware too, too much just because you have to keep really, really good notes on chance that you do get a recall. Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of like proceed at your own risk type thing. Um, So that's kind of, that's kind of where I am as far as hardware is concerned. Let me see what else I got on my list. Do you have anything else to say regarding that? Um... Probably not with regards to hardware uh, automation. What else do I we mean, have? I mean, like if I were to automate really anywhere, like if I do something pretty routine, it's going to kind of be like I'm building a record for somebody. Yeah. And it's like if my prints are a little bit weird, not weird, but just like they're different in volume level because it's like if you have like really loud sound the song, really quiet song, really loud sound. And it's like maybe it's like the the mass, I'm sorry, the the mix came in for the really quiet song at like minus 27, but then the really loud song came in at like minus 12 or something. It's like, even if you're going to like balance that out, you still risk on the print of printing at different, like, right, like really like levels that don't transition well. So, kind of like if I'm doing a lot of automation, it's normally on like the final limiter for me, which is normally the, uh, the Fat Filter Pro L2, which I like a lot. I recently picked up that, um, what's it called? Brainworks. That, that yeah, that new limiter from Brainworks, and I'm playing with that, and that got me. I demoed it, and for a client, it got me to a place um, better and quicker and cleaner than the Pro L2. But Ooh. I don't know if I'm completely sold on it, so I don't think it would be like a daily driver like the Pro L2 is. Um, however, with the Pro L2. Um, if I do need to like automate something up or down, um, it's like it's normally nothing too crazy. It's like I don't know. I'm normally within like 0. 0.5 
of my starting point. And if I need to go crazy, like greater than one and a half dB, which is really crazy for me, it's like, whoa, slow down, buddy. <laughs> if I need to go any crazier than one and a half dB, then I'll normally go back and reconsult. Okay, how was my print? Did I screw something up? Did something get a little weird or sideways or something like that? Like I'll always be like, could this have been fixed somewhere else? Um, and uh, not like second guessing or doubting myself. I don't really do that. But just like, could we have done this potentially cleaner or better than, because like if you're going to like, if you're at the mat, like the final leveling part song to song and you're like, man, I kind of need like, a little bit more level. We just came off this crazy song and now you're going like super quiet. It's like, do we need this or something like that? And then if you're really swinging levels on a limiter, the one thing that nobody really thinks about is what is the noise floor doing? Mm -hmm. Because if you have like a quiet song, like you say you have a lot of strings, you say, you and I were talking about that earlier, it was recorded say on a ribbon mic. Well, that may have taken like 60 dB to power that like 60 dB of gain on the on the tracking end to power that ribbon mic and then to mix those strings into the song, how much more level is added to that? And mm -hmm. then if we got it at minus 20 and this song, if it's a quiet song, it might know if we're going to print between like at the quietest parts, maybe minus 16 at the loudest parts. I mean, probably not super crazy loud, but I mean, from the, like you're working off of the noise floor of that, pre that was capturing those strings. So you risk at the limiter stage of essentially hearing that noise floor go up and down. Yeah. And so um just uh there there's a lot of like things that like maybe it's not advantageous to do like this crazy like automation move. So that's uh but normally if I am doing it it will be at the at the final limiter stage. Don't you Instead of like for like final level, don't you do the the fader? Or are you on the limiter, Sam? For final level, um, well, everything that comes in the box is usually at final like compression I want for the most part. And mm -hmm. then I just use fab filter to bring it up to negative zero point two. And fab filter okay. is just catching, say, a half dB or less, probably quarter dB of whatever slipped through in the analog world. But if you have like six, 10, however many songs, and yeah. do you have like a stage where you're like going through and you're listening to the transition and you're balancing it track to track? Because imagine it's probably not perfect when you print it every time. No, I mean, when I'm, if I have an album going on, each track has the fab filter on it. Yeah. And they're, but, they're, uh, I mean, they're almost the same. I well, I'll gain them. I gain them before they leave the box to be identical, in theory. Oh, so that look they, at you. So then they hit the gear like consistently. Okay, to get I a more do consistent that. sound. Because <laughs> like the I gear, don't do that. I mean, it's just how I like to work. As that's I'm smart. Just like consistency. Because I think my gear sounds different at different levels. Definitely. Um, so I usually shoot for like negative 12 output um, leaving. So I'll get everything, I'll get everything peaking there. Now, of course, 
you know, we, you and I and our audience probably knows, like between, if we want to say LUFS or RMS, just because something peaks the same doesn't mean it's perceived the same. But I'm kind of more concerned about where it's all peaking. So I try to get it within like a, a dB, half dB of negative 12 usually when I leave the box. And then I mm-hmm. rebuild it uh, out of the box and then it comes back in kind of similar. But it's a brick coming back in. So, you know, getting it to final level, usually all I have to do on my master print, the channel that's coming back in is, if I'm at like negative 12, then I go to the fab filter and I just hit plus 12. Because I know I'm 12 dB in theory away from zero. Um, so I just start there. And usually that's... Zero on your limiter, not yeah, zero sorry. on like a meter. Yeah, on my limiter. <laughs> um, you know, and then that's that. So works pretty well. I mean, there's always fine-tuning adjustments. Um I I will like fine tune in the box with digital post printing because I basically I let the analog gear like kind of have its way with the song. Like I'll yeah. I'll take the most good of what analog offers and this is just my opinion of what I think analog good is and there's obviously I mean there's times where I just work fully in the box too with stuff if it doesn't need to go out or it won't best serve it but I'll I'm more willing to like correct some boominess in theory in the box post analog if it's adding like awesome density and energy throughout the song. I know I can come in the box on its way back in and just do like a slight surgical. I know I don't usually do this, but I know I can save myself in theory while taking advantage of say the the awesomeness that analog can add. Or tubes. Because mm-hmm. sometimes, like, I'll, I mean, this isn't necessarily an automation trick, but like, I'll boost like 60 hertz or something or 40 hertz on the massive passive, knowing that it's like filling out the rest of the mid range. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if I was just to boost the mid range on the massive passive, it doesn't sound the same. So sometimes I'll boost lower, you know, crank it to get it, and then I'll cut it in the box specifically mm-hmm. with an EQ just because it sounds bigger. Well, because then you're like, you're cutting a tone that you like. Right, yeah. Yeah. So that's just kind of a, a, a little trick tip, you know, troubleshoot if you run into that. So, yeah, but normally I'll make everything sound or kind of be at the same level before it leaves my computer and then hits the gear consistently and then comes back in. Um, and then, but I mean, to be honest, like when I do full lengths at this stage with the music I work with, everybody wants every song to be like identical. There's not, Hmm. there's not a ton of people anymore. Like when I first started seven or eight years ago in Nashville, there were still people who would be like, I want like the, the album, people would say like, I want the album to like go somewhere like song one to 10 or 12. I want it to like not. And that's what I'm, I get a lot of that still. Yeah, I don't get that a lot anymore. It's more so people are like, I want it to be able to not have to change the volume from one to 12, more so than I want to feel like it goes somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's heavily influenced by the genres I'm in and the, the trends Definitely. that have happened over the last eight years, which is everything more loud more often. Like, you know, 
So it's that's where I'm saying circle back to like beginning where I said like when I automate, it's usually not a ton. I'm not doing like drop the verse 3db of the course as 3db louder because that's kind of jarring to people, especially when you're oh, yeah. when you're adjusting that volume of a brick of something that's already as loud as it can be the whole time. That's even more drastic than doing that on a dynamic type song because it's like the whole wall of sound is moving 3db. It's not just a peak. It's like nothing's peaking because everything's smashed to death. <laughs> so it's it's all just this brick of sound moving up and down together. So like a 3db on a compressed song is a huge movement where if the song was really dynamic, a 3db move wouldn't be as jarring in theory to me, in my opinion, based on my experience of, of doing automation with stuff. So I'm talking like half db moves and that's enough. If you're doing a half dB move when everything is the same volume, that means everything's moving a half dB in theory. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of source material moving a half dB um, up and down in your face, essentially. So That's why I've always liked that master rebalance, just because it's like you have that little minute control over that little element yeah. that you actually want to move. Yeah, I like... I mean, I've used master rebalance... A handful of times, and it is 100% saved my butt automating that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was telling you about my experiment I was doing earlier this week with it, which I don't even want to share that yet with the community because it's, <laughs> it's not a secret. I just don't want that in public yet. But nah, um, save it. Cliffhanger. Yeah, you're going to save that. You'll have to come Maybe back. Maybe for some time, not now. I have to prove that it works first consistently. Uh, before I let it out into the public. But to me, it's pretty ballsy. It's a ballsy move, but I did it and it worked. And for you, for everyone listening, I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. But maybe a year or two from now, if I prove that it has value and it wasn't just a fluke, uh, I'll share it. But yeah, I, I'll automate Master Rebounds occasionally, um, mainly with vocals. That's where I use the most if I'm. Mm-hmm. Because loudness is so much dependent on vocal placement, in my opinion, in the genres I work 100%. in. One hundred percent. So if someone's giving me a reference, and I'm like, "Man, we've already smashed this thing to death!" Like it's, we're at you know negative four dr or rms, or basically at that stage, it's the same for luffs almost. Everything's just the mm-hmm. same, and they want it to compete with Post Malone or something. You know, and I put that record on. I'm like, well, I know why it's louder. It's because the vocal's 6 dB out in front. Like, mm-hmm. so then yeah. at that stage, I'll just go to Master Rebalance, boost, boost the vocal a dB or two, send it back, and usually that fixes it. And it does sound more correct, uh, correct to the the reference they're going for. I think most people don't realize how loud vocals are in modern music anymore. Screaming, like they're screaming loud, and the way you get away with it usually at the pro level is when you're recording with a great mic, you can crank a vocal and it just sounds great. Like it just always Mm -hmm. sounds good, whether it's screaming loud or quiet. It doesn't really get lost. Like that's what I've noticed with the massive passive or uh, the manly mic I have. Like when I record people on and off, mainly like rap stuff, that microphone, when you record someone with it, it just always sounds present and big in the song. And whether you decide to crank it up front, you know, it still sounds great. 
And whether you try to like tuck it, it's still super present if you want a more kind of glued in old 90s hip hop sound. But anyway, that's a side tangent of a great microphone. Is that what you're on right now? Yeah, I'm on a on the Manly right now. Yeah, so um, Sam records on like a $3,000 mic. So y'all, <laughs> y'all better enjoy this. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the chain is like $15,000 realistically. <laughs> weird, weird flex, but that's, it's true. I've just started going through my chain and I, I downgraded mics. I used to use uh, the TLM 103. Yeah. And then like, I just always had like an RE20, one of the electro voices. I just always had one of those just kind of like hanging up by my desk because for my other company, we have another podcast. Yeah. And so it's just always hanging around, always set up and always ready to go. And I'm just like, yeah, I'll just plug this sucker in. It's already on like a pop filter, so I can like bang on the desk as much as I want or like move the mic around. And it's normally like pretty solid, pretty good to go. A little bit of fidelity hit over the Neumann, but I don't have to set it up every week. Right. You and I just talk and I just plug the sucker in, turn the pre on and off we go. I kind of so. honestly like butcher it because for podcast stuff we do, I mean, we have the loudest podcast on the internet still. <laughs> And it's because I just smash everything. Like it's, I, I just think it sounds good, smash. So I probably like, I could get away with a lesser vocal chain, but this is this is what I usually have set up. So it's what I, I have go another to. pre that I want that's like super obnoxious, but I'm totally going to get it. And uh, whenever I get that, I'm going to, I'll probably run through my chain. I'm running through my chain now because I kind of ran out of options. And the only thing on this is like whatever the heck the crane song head is doing. I have a little I have a little bit of leftover pentoed and tape dialed in in case <laughs> if it makes a difference. Um, it doesn't make a difference. So y'all didn't know that the past however many episodes I've been doing it. So I was gonna say shut up. I had no idea what I'm recording with either. Doesn't matter for a podcast. You wanna wrap this podcast? Take us home, Matt. I need to go home. Yeah, I need to. I need to go home. You are home. <laughs> I, that's true. <laughs> My wife's like, "You're late for dinner." We got pretty good dinner tonight too. Uh, so yeah, if you have made it to this point in our podcast, our ramblings, our ninety seventh venture into this game, thank you. And if you're hearing the sweet beat queuing up from the background, that was made by the one and only Sam Moses. If you like that, you can head over to Beza Beats and check them out. If you need a mastering engineer, our services can be found at either Moses Mastering for Sam or for the record mastering for me. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, websites, whatever have you. Websites. And we, if, yeah, you know, we'd love to work with you. So I promise not to use reverb. I'm not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um yeah, but besides that, if you could just do us a solid and like, comment, subscribe, and most importantly, share with a friend, repost our story whenever we post it and be like, hey, this podcast doesn't really suck. You should listen to it. We'd appreciate it. Anywho, besides that, I think we're done here. Morning, afternoon, evening, whatever you're having, have a darn good one. Sam, cue up the music. Cue it. See y'all later.